As Pastor Mark mentioned, we're going to be going through chapter 2 of the book, How to Study the Bible. Uh, This chapter is going to be focusing on how did we get our Bible. And uh, Pastor Mark is passing out the outlines uh, that I prepared for us tonight. So as you kind of get them, I just want to, just a quick word. Um, So I've kind of designed this uh, as kind of like a fill-in-the-blank follow-along, so a little bit of a different format from last week. Uh, I guess my my goal is that it'll kind of uh, just kind of help frame kind of the roadmap with where we're going, and then also uh, just kind of give you space to take notes if you so desire, and then also just to be a handy little resource um, as, as, you know, after we leave here tonight. Um, Also, just quickly, for those of you who have heard me speak and preach before, I tend to go rather fast. So um, if I tend to do that, if I am kind of moving too quickly for you, please just kind of go ahead and raise your hand. Just let me know. Uh, It's something I'm trying to work on, and uh, if you would help me with that, I would appreciate it. Um, Okay, so let's kind of get started here. So as I mentioned, we're going through how did we get our Bible, and this chapter examines uh, how the Bible came to be and how we can know that it is true and how we can know that it really holds God's word given to us. And so just to kind of, again, provide the brief roadmap here, we're going to be looking at what the Bible claims about itself. We're going to be looking at uh, what... Dr. Mayhew calls the publishing process, which is just another kind of phrase for how the Bible came to be. Also, we're looking at the principles which were used by the early church and the church fathers to recognize which writings were inspired by God. And then also we're going to be looking at how we know that the Bible is now complete and that nothing will be added to it in the future, also known as the closed canon. Uh, This is a somewhat of a controversial topic, um, but I think Dr. Mayhew does a pretty good job of laying out pretty sound arguments for why we can have confidence to know that the canon is closed. So we're going through all this, and and this chapter is important just because in order for us to know and study the Bible, we need to understand the Bible, including what it says and how it came to be and how it has been protected from distortion over the many, many years. And the main point, I think, for this whole chapter is that we can have confidence that the Bible is true and accurate in every respect, Because God has protected it through his power and his divine plan. God is is true. He has decided to give us his word. He is all-powerful, and nothing can thwart his his will and design. And so in his uh, power and providence, he has kept the Bible free from error throughout the many centuries uh, that we have it, despite Satan's many attacks. And so we're going to briefly look at that later here in the lesson. Um. A couple of common questions regarding the accuracy and inerrancy of the Bible as we kind of delve into these, these kind of core terms, just kind of looking at some general principles about the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of skeptics today, um, particularly in liberalism. They, they kind of tend to attack the Bible. Um, they, they tend not to accept what the Bible says about itself, and they like to try to rely on external sources for how we can know that the Bible is true. Um, and so... The, the author here, you know, in the heading entitled, Has God Said?, he lays out several common questions uh, that many people will have, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. Questions like, where did the Bible come from? Uh, whose thinking does it reflect? Did any books of the Bible get lost in time past? Uh, what does the scripture claim for itself? And does it live up to those claims? Uh, this is a good question. How about, who wrote the Bible, God or man? Um, And then, as we kind of alluded to, has Scripture been protected from human tampering over the centuries? And then, how close to the original manuscripts are today's translations? You know, there are no originals that exist. Everything we have is copies. So, since we don't have any of the originals, 
can we really know for sure that what we have here is accurate? I mean, the Bible has been passed down for many centuries, and it's translated many, many, many times in many different languages. Certainly with all that, that potential for human error, how can we really know that what we have is accurate? Um, how did the Bible get to our time and our language? And then also, as I alluded to, is there more scripture to come beyond the current 66 books? Who determined uh, what's in the Bible and on what basis? Um, and so then, in sum, does, the, does today's Bible really deserve the title, the Word of God? And so what I first want to do is kind of take a look at Scripture's self-claims. Um, as I mentioned, we really need to let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible is, to use a legal term, it is self-authenticating. It doesn't need to be verified or confirmed by any other external source. And so just looking at both the Old and the New Testament, the Old Testament claims that it is true and that it is from God. The Old Testament asserts, either explicitly or implicitly, that God is its author over 2,000 times. It is not ambiguous or unclear about its claims. And then in the New Testament, again, the phrase, the word of God, occurs over 40 times in the New Testament. It's equated with the Old Testament in, in Mark chapter 7. We know that it is, the New Testament is what Jesus preached in Luke 5. We know that it was the message that the apostles taught. You can see this in Acts chapter 4 and also in Acts chapter 6. We know that it is the word the Samaritans received in Acts 8, as it was given by the apostles. It's the message that the Gentiles received, as preached by Peter in Acts 11. We know that Paul preached the message on his first missionary journey, in his second missionary journey, and his third missionary journey, detailed in Acts 13, Acts 15, Acts 16, 17, and 18, and then finally Acts 19. And also, Paul was careful to tell the Corinthians that he spoke the word as it was given from God, and that it has not been changed or adulterated, and that it was a manifestation of truth. And then finally, Paul acknowledged that the scripture was the source of his preaching. So, over and over, the Bible claims for itself that it is true and it is God's word. And so, in addition to the fact that it's unique in the respect that it's from God, it's also unique in that it claims ultimate spiritual authority in doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so, can I have a volunteer to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17? Whoever gets there first, let's go ahead and read it out. Perfect, thank you. We're not going to have time to read all the Bible verses I want to tonight, but I wanted to, to make sure we spend time and at least read this one. There's a lot here, and I want to unpack it briefly. So, as we just heard, the Bible, um, it, it claims that it is the ultimate spiritual authority. And what that talks about is that because it's from God, it is, has the highest and greatest weight to it. When we talk that something is authoritative, it's not merely someone's opinion. It's not a suggestion. It's not, hey, this is a good idea. You should really try your best to do this. When the scripture is authoritative, it's talking about how this is really is, it's a set of absolutes, and throughout the Bible, it's also a set of commands. And again, because this comes from Almighty God. 
And then in addition to being authoritative, it also asserts that it is sufficient, and it claims exclusivity for its teaching. And so, and this is in uh, both Isaiah 55, 11 and 2 Peter chapter 1. And so when we're talking about so the, the sufficiency of Scripture, does anyone have any idea what we're talking about when we're talking about what that means? Okay, sure, that's true. Nothing lacking in what respect? Oh, that's fine. So, I mean, you're right. So sufficient means that it is, it is whole and complete, and you don't need to add anything else to it. That's true. So what it's talking about for, in terms of spiritual sufficiency is you don't need to add anything to it in order to have all the information leading you towards salvation. So there's, there's so many cults around the world that like to take the Bible and add something to it. You know, you're talking about the Mormons, you're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science. They all like to say, well, we like the Bible, but we also like to go ahead and add this other thing here on the side to it. And by doing that, they are attacking the sufficiency of Scripture because, again, they're saying implicitly, well, it's not complete by itself. We need to go ahead and add something else to it. So... That's not true. I mean, the Bible sufficiency, it's a, it's a key and important doctrine that we don't believe that it stands, I mean, we believe it stands on its own, nothing else needs to go with it. And then also, the Bible declares that it is inerrant, and this is repeatedly throughout Psalms, you get chapter 12 and chapter 119, and then also John 10.35. Um, and the, when I say inerrant, what, what does inerrancy mean? Not flawed. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what that means. It is free from error. And then also, and as we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible also declares that it is infallible. And so what does infallible mean? It's very closely related to inerrant. Yes, go ahead, Royal. What, is, what do you think it means? Is perfect. It's very similar to inerrant in that it is trustworthy, but it's also, not only is it free from error, but it's incapable of error. I know it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a close, close meaning, but it, I think it's, 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 it's similar in that it's, I think it's even a, a step greater. Um, and then finally, the Bible claims to be inspired of God. I think everyone knows what this means. When we're saying that the Bible is inspired, what does that mean? God breathes. So God is its, its source. It's, a, it's its author. Okay. So mankind just didn't come up with it on its own. And then this is another uh, concept that Dr. Mayhew touched on, um, that the person of God and the word of God are interrelated. And when we say that they're interrelated, what, what do you, how, how do you think they're, the, how do you relate the Bible to, to God? In what way are they kind of connected? Yes, go ahead, Rosie. So the word communicates God's character. That's true. Yeah, that's that's exactly true. I think um, when we're talking about that, it's inter- interrelated. It's that whatever is true about the character of God is also true about the nature of God's word. So that because the word of God came from God, it's going to share a lot of the same characteristics. So, for example, we know that God is true and that He is reliable. And the, the, the word also impeccable, or meaning it is perfect and not capable of being anything other than perfect. And so because those are God's characteristics, those same things are true about the Bible as well. 
And then this was also a, a really kind of cool point that I hadn't thought about that Dr. Mayhew touched on. What every person thinks about God's word reflects what a person thinks about God himself. So if you've ever heard of someone talking about a high view of Scripture versus a low view of Scripture, what's that talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So if you hold the Bible in high regard, you're likely to also hold God in high regard. Because if you value his word highly, it shows that you value God highly. And so that's kind of what I think Dr. Mayhew was talking about when he's talking about how God and his word are really interrelated. And also our attitude about the word of God is, very, is also very much true about our attitude towards God himself. So that's just briefly covering um, some of the Bible's claims about itself. And now I want to move into, again, what I called earlier the publishing process. We're going to get into how we came to have God's word. Um, Dr. Mayhew, in, in the chapter, he kind of sketches, there, there are five kind of subheadings that kind of go under this main point. So we, we came to have God's word through God's revelation, God's inspiration, and then we, we look at the, the concept of canonicity, or what writings came to be included in the Bible, and then how the Bible is preserved, so it's preservation, and then finally the Bible's transmission. So that's as it was shared and copied and translated over and over and over throughout the centuries, basically how it maintained the fact that it is free from error. So you know, how it was protected from having other meanings kind of woven in. So when we're talking about revelation, we're talking about how God has revealed or disclosed himself to mankind. And so we believe that God took the initiative to reveal himself to mankind, and we get that from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, can I have a quick volunteer to read that for us? Thank you. <laughs> oh, him, no, nope, guess what, you volunteer. <laughs> uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Perfect. So yeah, so this is, this is touching on a, what, what theologians will call general revelation and also kind of versus special revelation. So when we're talking about revelation, it's, it's how mankind came to know of or be aware of God. And so what are some of the ways that we know God exists? So obviously we know God's word. That's one way we know that God exists. Through creation. Okay, perfect. How else? That, that's very true. Yeah, that's, that is accurate. And we know about Jesus, again, through his word. But, I mean, are you talking about, like, the scriptural, you know, like, you know, what the scripture has to say about Jesus? Or are you talking about, like, archaeological evidence or just in general? Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's true. Okay. What else? Conscience. Okay. So I think maybe the God's moral law that's written on everyone's hearts. Okay, good. Okay, yeah, you guys have given some good examples. So we kind of break that up into, again, general revelation and special revelation. So when we're talking about scripture, that falls into special revelation. 
and things like creation, that's an example of general revelation. And so the most complete and understandable uh, revelation or self-disclosures that God made was through the scriptures. And we know that because while there's a lot of things that you can learn about God through creation, they, they kind of tend to be more general. You get a lot more specific detail through God's word. Um, and then scripture is unique in that it is the only revelation of God that is so complete and so clearly declares a man's sinfulness and God's provision of the Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. So we start out with how we got God's word with the source, the author himself, so God, and then how he gave us the scripture through basically uh, the prophets and how he, he inspired mankind to write the scriptures. Well, actually, I'm kind of jumping the gun. So, that, so from Revelation, we get into inspiration, and that's the process by which God has revealed himself. And so as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we know that all scripture is inspired by God, and, that, and then also all scripture was given by God the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I'll go ahead and I'll read that very quickly. Second Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21. But we know that first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And then also we believe that because those first two things are true, Scripture was protected from human error in its original record by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So because God purposed to reveal himself to us, that he would by necessity need to try to protect it, because we believe that Satan will try to do everything he can to attack Scripture and try to distort it. And so, I, 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 can I have three volunteers? I need a volunteer to read Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Thank you very much. And then can I have a volunteer, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Go ahead, Chris. And then can I also have a volunteer to read Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12. Thank you, Rachel. All right. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. So again, I mean, what this is talking about is that it's the, the Holy Spirit who he, he works to make sure that his word is protected and not distorted. And so then the ministry of the Holy Spirit extends not only to, the, to, the, uh, it, to the, both the words and also the whole of the original writings. And so when we're talking about the original writings, we're talking about the very first writing done by the, the, the human author once he received inspiration from God. So again, this isn't the copies, it's talking about the original record. So that's, we've kind of briefly covered revelation and also inspiration. And now we're getting into canonicity, or how did we get the Bible? 
So there have been, obviously, many, many writings throughout the centuries, and many of them would claim to be from God. However, not all of them end up in the Bible. So how do we know what writings are really from God, and how do we know what writings really are not? So the word canon actually comes from the root word um, Cain, the English word Cain, and the Hebrew form of the word is ganah, and the Greek form is canon. And basically, when it's talking about reed, it's used as a measuring rod. And so the word canon really came to mean the standard. So the canon really is talking about what metrics or what standards we use to determine whether something is inspired from God and what's not. And so, and eventually it became to mean a list or an index. And so we know that the Bible was given by God, the divine author, and that he used, 40, uh, used almost 40 human authors over a span of almost 1,500 years. But again, we need to know um, how to recognize what writings were really from God. And so there are five principles that were used by the early church fathers to validate those writings which came as a result of divine revelation and inspiration. So there were eventually church councils that would meet, and that would actually, the, you know, the, early, the leaders of the early church would meet to decide, okay, how do we recognize what writings are supposed to be in the Bible? And so the five principles are, number one, the writing had to have a recognized prophet or an apostle as its author. Number two, the writer had to have his writings confirmed by the acts of God. Three, the writing could not disagree with or contradict previous scripture. Four, the writing had to have the power of God. And finally, number five, the writing had to have wide acceptance by the community of believers. And so I want to briefly kind of go back through and provide a little bit of context for each one of those five. So for number one, the writing had to have a recognized prophet or apostle as its author. So obviously, God would be very careful in who he would use to do his work and you know, actually write scripture. And so one metric that the early church fathers used was, okay, do we know that the author, was he definitely a prophet? Did he make prophecies that came about, that were confirmed? You know, for example, we know Moses wrote the Pentateuch. It was, it's been widely accepted that God used Moses to do that for, for thousands of years. So that's, that's one indication that you know that that writing could, could very well be inspired. And then number two, the writer had to have his writings confirmed by the acts of God. So again, this is kind of talking about miracles. For example, frequently miracles separated the true prophets from the false ones. In the Old Testament, there was a command given by God that if a person who supposed himself to be a prophet, if he made a prophecy and it didn't come true, what does that mean? He's a false prophet. <laughs> and God was very specific in the Old Testament how to treat false prophets. So, for example, I mean, so that's another good metric to use. Like, okay, if you have a person who's making claims to have Scripture and he's making prophecies that aren't coming true, probably not, probably not in inspired writings. And then number three, the writing could not disagree with or contradict previous scripture. So I think some of you may have kind of heard this principle before. Scripture cannot contradict itself. 
because God is true. He is not the father of lies. He loves truth. And so God would never say one thing in one instance and then completely contradict himself in another instance. So we know that because the Bible must be in accord with himself, because God is in accord with itself. So if you have recognized scripture and then something down the line disagrees with it, we know that we can throw away that second piece of supposed scripture that it is not inspired. And then number four, the writing had to have the power of God. So this is because the early church fathers believed that the word of God is a living and active and consequently ought to have a transforming force for edification. And so when you look at the, the overall message of that proposed writing, if it didn't include principles that would lead to a transformed life, that was oftentimes an indication that this probably wasn't really inspired scripture. And there were several writings um, that we had in the early church that they were ultimately discarded just because they were maybe superfluous to other scripture that we had. It really lacked that, that kind of powerful nature of the text that we know that other inspired scripture had. So that was just kind of one other metric that the early church used. And then finally, the writing had to have wide acceptance by the community of believers. So in the early couple centuries after you know, after Jesus ascended into heaven and the church grew, there would be writings that would be circulated by the, the, the early church fathers among the different churches in, you know, in, the near, in uh, you know, Palestine and throughout you know, Egypt and, and Syria and different areas that the church was growing. And so one metric they used was, was this universally recognized by God's people? Or did it kind of tend to have a very limited following? Was it only locally accepted? Or was it something that you know, every believer... Would, would universally recognize, oh, you know, this was, this was from God. So that was another kind of metric that they used that, you know, again, a lot of writings they had in the early church, they weren't necessarily bad, but if they weren't widely followed or accepted, that was a pretty good indication that probably wasn't inspired scripture. And then this is uh, another point that I want to make sure we touch on here. So the early church councils, they did not decide which books should comprise the Bible, Instead, they use these five principles that we just went over to recognize what God has already accomplished. So the point is this, and it's a, it's a kind of a narrow concept, but does the church determine what books go in the Bible, or does the church recognize what books go in the Bible? What do you guys think? Recognize. Okay, why is that? Right. That's exactly true. So the reason, so when we say the church, you know, the, the, the other view, I mean, often kind of used by the, the Catholic Church, they tend to determine what the canon is. Why is that a, a inaccurate view? Or really, I mean, what's the difference? When we're talking about determining what the canon is and recognizing what the canon is, what's the difference between those two concepts? Yeah. What else, guys? What do you think? Tim? Perfect. I love that answer. You're right. So the first view, when the, when, if you hold to the view that the church determines what the canon is, what you're really saying is that the church kind of sits in the place of God. 
and that you think that the church is the highest authority for determining what scripture is and isn't. The correct view is that the church merely recognizes what the inspired scriptures are. We recognize that God is the ultimate authority and that he is working and that he has given us his word, and we merely recognize what it is. Um, There's a really good kind of passage from, I'm using Josh McDowell's The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, excellent resource book. If you don't have it for your library, I recommend it. Um, There's a really good passage that I think kind of highlights this concept very well. It's important to note that the church did not create the canon. It did not determine which books would be called scripture, the inspired word of God. Instead, the church recognized or discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. Or stated another way, a book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. So, yes, it's good that God's people recognize what the word is, or what God's word is, but ultimately it's God who determines that, not us. Okay, good. Um, And then as we kind of look into, we're kind of going through canonicity here, so all the New Testament, when you look at, you know, how the Old New Testament came to be recognized and the writings included in the Bible, so all all of the Old Testament had been written and accepted in the Jewish community by, by the time that Jesus Christ was on earth. Um, And Jesus himself recognized the validity of the Old Testament. And then we all know Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament, and it was written in approximately 430 B.C. And then the Old Testament canon at the time of Jesus Christ conformed to the Old Testament, which had been used throughout the centuries. And then, okay, so who has heard of the Apocrypha? Okay, many of you. All right, what what is the Apocrypha? Not Revelation. Okay, additional books. Okay, all right. Okay, that's true, yeah. In fact, I think the Catholic Bible includes, I think, many or most of the books of the Apocrypha. That's true. Does anyone remember the, the writings that comprise the Apocrypha? What, are they, what do they talk about? Or, or actually, or even more specifically, why aren't they included? Does anyone know? Right, yeah. Do you remember what some of the apocryphal books are? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, that's in there. I think Barak's in there, the book of Tobit's in there. So you're right, I think it's, it's maybe like 13 or 14 different books that, that are, you know, again, the Catholic Bible I think includes many or most of those. But yes, they're excluded for, for, a, couple, for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned earlier. They, they don't fit within those five principles. A lot of those writings, for example, they contradict other well-settled scripture, you know, we can't really, you know, the, the author we really couldn't recognize as a prophet or an apostle. So, you know, for different reasons, they're excluded. Um, but again, also very importantly, um, you know, Jesus, he did recognize the Old Testament canon, but he never affirmed um, the Apocrypha. And none of the New Testament authors cited the Apocrypha either in any of their writings. So that also pretty good evidence. Um, so yes, so uh, as Tim mentioned, so the Apocrypha was a collection of writings. It was an intertestamental period written after Malachi, and it was attached to the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
And then turning to the New Testament, so the 27 books of the New Testament, they have been generally accepted by the church since approximately between 350 and 400 A.D. And so these would include, obviously, the books of Mark and Luke and Acts. They were considered, uh, you know, they were considered to be the penmen for Peter and Paul. The books of James and Jude, they were written by Christ's half-brothers. And then the book of Hebrews is actually the only book of the New Testament whose authorship is unknown for certain, but its content is so in line with uh, the Old and New Testament writings that the early church uh, considered that it must have been written by an apostolic associate. So, really, we've had the, the Protestant Bible in its current form, or at least the books of the canon that comprise the Bible. It's been around since at least 400 A.D. at the latest. And then turning now to the fourth point, preservation. So this talks about, again, how God has kept the Bible free from error and attack. So, one of Satan's prime concerns in life is to undermine the Bible. And so you can go throughout Scripture and see examples of this, how Satan denied God's word to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He attempted to distort Scripture with Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. He attempted to destroy Scripture through King Jehoiakim in Jeremiah chapter 36. And yet, despite these and many other attacks by Satan, Scripture has and definitely will continue to outlast its enemies. And this is because we know that God has guaranteed that Scripture would continue to exist, and that he will keep it safe from distortion. No inspired scripture has been lost in the past and now awaits rediscovery, and that the actual content of scripture will be perpetuated both in heaven and on earth. And we know all this because the purposes of God will never be thwarted, even in the slightest detail. So again, because God is all-powerful and because it is God's will to give us the scriptures, because he wants to reveal and disclose himself, and because he's dedicated to preserving it, we know that God will, of course, bring that to pass. And then finally, transmission. So this is talking about how the Bible has been kept free from error and distortion as it has been shared and spread. So the Bible has been frequently translated into multiple languages and distributed throughout the world. So how can we be sure that error has not crept in, even if unintentionally? So again, as I mentioned, up until you had the printing press... The way that we would get scripture was that you would have scribes or copyists that they would take uh, earlier copies and they would continue to make more and more copies. And so these were handwritten. So I don't know about you. Has anyone ever tried to you know, write out a book report by hand? Yeah. <laughs> it's miserable. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I remember you know, when I was in school, you make the rough draft and then you got to go ahead and you got to try to write the report out and you would make errors. And so... I mean, isn't it kind of reasonable to expect that there would be some errors when you have scribes copying things by hand? Okay, so, well, even before we kind of step back, so let's look at how the, the original writings, how they were, were made. So the original writings of Scripture, they were written in Hebrew and Aramaic and then also in Greek. So um, the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, and then the New Testament, Greek. Um, so copies and translations, they were made by hand. And then the printing press arrived at about 1450 A.D. And so this was monumental because it made uh, it much easier and much cheaper to produce the Bibles. So before this, obviously, it was a great undertaking to have a Bible. So before 1450, pretty much no families had one because they just simply could not afford one. There might be one Bible for the whole church or even the whole town. 
So the printing press made a big difference. It just made it much easier for the word of God to be transmitted even further and faster. Who has heard of, of the term textual criticism? Has anyone heard about that term before? A couple of people? Okay. What is textual criticism? Anyone want to take a stab at it? So it is actually, it's a science, and it is the, the science to evaluate the authenticity of documents. So the way textual criticism works is that you will examine the amount of the number of copies or you know of a given writing, and then you will see how closely they conform to each other. And what this does is this will give you an idea as to the accuracy of, of the different copies. So the number of existing biblical manuscripts, it dramatically outnumbers the existing fragments of any other ancient literature. And, and again, so and by comparing the texts, a textual critic can confidently determine what the original prophetic or apostolic inspired writings contained. So, for example, with regards to the Old Testament, the earliest copies of the ancient Hebrew text date to about the 10th century A.D., and we can compare these to the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and that was written in approximately 200 to 150 B.C. And then the oldest copies of this would date to approximately 325 A.D. And so this is, there's an amazing parallel between the two, which shows the accuracy in copying the Hebrew text over the centuries. And so, again, uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were then discovered in about 1947 through 1956... These were manuscripts of Hebrew texts dated between 200 and 100 B.C. And so then when the, the textual critics or the textual critics went back and they would compare the, the later Hebrew texts with the ones from the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were only a few slight variations, and none of these changed the meaning of any passage. So this was very, very significant, because when you have many, many, many manuscripts, and they are nearly identical and what they read, that is really, really good evidence that they are all accurate. I mean, yes, there are definitely some, you know, different copying mistakes here and there, but this was, uh, I mean, this is really amazing when you consider God's faithfulness to preserving his word, because generally, if you look at any other ancient work, there's many, there's far less manuscripts available and the, the degree of variation among the manuscripts is much, much greater. So when you have that, you have less certainty that any given copy is really accurate. So, um, and just kind of even kind of put, you know, kind of illustrate this further. There are over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts in existence. And these range from entire Bibles and all the way down to little scraps of papyrus containing even just a partial verse. A few of these fragments date to within 25 to 50 years of the original writing. So even though we don't have the originals, we have something that's like the next best thing. That's, that's pretty impressive. There's almost 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament when you consider Greek and all the other languages. That's an astounding number. Just to kind of illustrate this, there's only about 643 manuscripts for Homer's Iliad. And to my knowledge, no college professor has ever seriously doubted the, the, author, the uh, accuracy uh, and the authenticity of the Iliad. But for some reason, there seems to be many people that like to claim, oh, the Bible isn't accurate, we don't have the originals. <laughs> 
And so New Testament textual critics have generally concluded that approximately 99.99% of the original writings have been reclaimed, and there are no variants substantially affecting any Christian doctrine. All right, I want to kind of hurry up and move things along here. So just going through a brief history of the English Bible. So John Wycliffe, he made the first English translation of the entire Bible, and, this, and he lived in th- between 1330 and 1384 A.D. And then we had William Tyndale. Many of you might remember him from our uh, Reformation celebration. So William Tyndale, he's associated with the first complete printed New Testament in English, and this was around 1526 A.D. And then you had Miles Coverdale. He delivered the first complete Bible in 1535, and it was printed in English. And then finally you had the King James Version. It was completed in 1611. So we have had uh, the Bible for a very, very long time. And then finally, uh, getting to, is there more to come? So the, is basically, is the canon closed? And if so, how, how can we know that it's closed? So again, um, God uh, will, we know that God will not add another book to the Bible. And there's mainly four verses that we can go to to kind of determine this. So we have, actually, I need four volunteers. Can I have someone read, look up and read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2? Yep, go ahead. And then can I have uh, someone look up and read Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32? Thank you, Charity. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. Thanks, Royal. And then Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Thank you, Rosie. Appreciate it. All right, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Okay, very good. And then Deuteronomy chapter 12, 32. All right, and Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. And then finally, Revelation chapter 22, 18 and 19. Okay, perfect. Thanks, everybody. So just want to try to wrap this up because I know we're, we're running short on time. So there's mainly five arguments that we have for a closed canon of Scripture. So first, we look at the fact that Genesis and Revelation, by their contents, they are the bookends of Scripture. They open and close the Bible. Number two, there was a prophetic silence after Malachi completed the Old Testament. And then there's also a parallel silence after John delivered Revelation. So therefore, it's possible to conclude that Revelation closed the New Testament canon in the same way that Malachi closed the Old Testament canon. And then number and then third, there are there have not been nor are there now any authorized prophets or apostles. Therefore, there are no potential authors of future inspired canonical writings. So going back to one of the five principles we talked about for how the church recognized inspired scripture, you need to pay attention to the author. So Right now, we, there are no prophets or apostles that we can point to that we can say this would be a potential person God could use to add on to the canon. So, 
I mean, again, so it looks like the canon is closed because we don't have any authors to continue adding on to the Bible. And then we just read the four different verses that talk about not tampering with the scriptures. And so the only one that contains warnings of severe divine judgment for disobedience is in Revelation. Revelation is the only book of the New Testament to end with this kind of admonition. So, therefore, the facts strongly suggest that Revelation was the last book of the canon, because the previous three, they didn't contain any warnings. So, Revelation, the verse that we just read in Revelation, gives the kind of finality to that. And then finally, the early church, those being closest in time to the apostles, they believed that Revelation concluded God's inspired writings. So, because the early church and early Christians believed that, it would seem that they would probably be the best people to make that sort of judgment. So, we would probably be wise to adopt their their opinion and position on it. So, again, this is a bit of a controversial subject and topic. Uh, I mean, there are those um, who would argue for an open canon that God is still adding on to the Bible. But the, I think Dr. Mayhew does a pretty good job of identifying five pretty strong arguments for why the open canon theory doesn't really hold together. And so that's, uh, that kind of concludes the, the second chapter of the book. So we're a little short on time, so I'm, I'm not going to really go into the discussion questions. Um, I did include them at kind of the, the end of the, the outline for your notes um, you know, so please do go through them. I think they're very helpful. There's some good questions there. Um, but with that, I'll go ahead and I will close. Um, so please bow your heads, and uh, I'll go ahead and dismiss us. Dear Heavenly Father, we, again, just come before you tonight just to thank you for your, for your word. And we just want to thank you for protecting your word and for the gift of your word, and also that Uh, We have teachers here in this church who hold your word in high regard. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we go our separate ways tonight, we just ask that you protect each one of us, uh, continue to uh, work in in all of our lives just for sanctification and for greater love towards you and for other Christians around us or even just uh, other people around us, Father. Help us to depend more and more on you every day and help us to, to be in your word because we recognize that it is your word that, that we can grow in Christ-likeness and sanctification. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.